Open your Bibles if you would. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Mm. Welcome the guests we had this morning. We have quite a few folks we haven't seen before or haven't seen in a long time. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. Over the last 10 months, I think, 12 months, we, we looked at the Corinthian letters. And as we worked our way through the Corinthian letters, we um, became aware of how relevant they are to our situation because of the great many issues that were in the Corinthian church. Uh, the cultural um, train wreck that was ancient Corinth had made its way into the church. And the church was manifesting, as our, we normally do, uh, the issues of the cultures in which we exist. And so there were some real problems in that Corinthian church, very parallel to a lot of the issues we face in our culture. So we found the relevance in the Corinthian letters there. Um, now we turn to the church in Ephesus, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And it's relevant in a kind of a, a very different way um, for a couple different reasons. Uh, first of all, there's just incredible stuff in this letter. Paul writes some incredible stuff that just simply speaks right to us and the issues in our life, and what it is to be a follower of Christ. There's just great stuff in this letter. Um, talking about the importance of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we've just been, we just came out of Pentecost, so we've talked a lot about that, the importance of understanding that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But there's, a, there's another reason I think the Ephesian letters are so important for us and so relevant, um, like right now really relevant, are the issues that happen outside the church. The Corinthian church really had some struggles because they allowed cultural issues to seep into the church and affect how they lived, how they attempted to follow Christ while allowing way too much of, of the contemporary culture that was most profoundly ungodly to seep in. The Ephesian church, we're going to find, was almost like the opposite of that. They, like the Corinthian church, had a, were drawn out of a culture that was definitely ungodly. But rather than be influenced internally, it was like the opposite. Like, put up walls, don't let any... We are going to be so careful that we don't do that, that they had kind of had an isolation that they kind of struggled with. And so we're going to see that as we make our way uh, through the letter. And of course, I think we really need to be careful of that, even, especially in our own, our own present situation. So before we get any farther, let's go ahead and look to the text. Uh, we're going to begin with the first seven verses. Marvelous, marvelous letter that Paul writes. We read, starting in the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind attention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Father, we thank you for your word and ask, Lord, that as we look to your word this morning, we would simply hear from you. Father, that is our great need. Father, it doesn't, I don't think it matters what we're dealing with, um, good or bad. 
if we're struggling with knowing how to react to bad news, if we're trying to get our hearts and minds around really good news, that we know that your spirit guides us that we would respond in the way uh, that just draws us closer to you and, and causes us to be more like you, Father, that others might see you. So help us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I'd like to do this morning, by way of starting, uh, is to again kind of set the stage for the letter, get the context set, that's so important, talking about Ephesus and the church that developed there, how that church developed there, and then step into the, into the actual body, the text of the letter, and um, see what, what's going on, what Paul's talking about, and then finally we ask, how does that, how does that speak to us? That's kind of the pattern I like to follow. So first of all, the setting, and the setting is extremely important, um, for reasons that will make themselves evident. Ephesus itself, if you don't happen to know where it is, it's on the west, it's almost on the western coast. It's in southwestern Turkey, almost on the coast. We'll talk about that almost figure in just a moment. It really, really old city. goes back to the Neolithic age. I really don't even know how old the Neolithic age is, but it's old. Um, the city was thousands of years old when Paul got there. So, I mean, it's that old, right? It was already an old city when Paul got there, you know, a couple thousand years ago. Uh, if it helps, it's just like 200 miles straight east of Athens. If you leave Athens, you go straight east a couple hundred miles. Did I say a thousand? A couple hundred miles. And you'd find yourself in the region of, of Ephesus. Like Corinth, it started out as a, as a port city. If you recall, so much that we talked about in the Corinthian letters was due to it being a, a major port city and everything that came into the city, along with all the cargo and stuff that comes into a port city. Uh, but with a couple of big differences. Uh, the first is, by the time Paul gets there, first century, the port has closed. It's no longer a port city. Um, the river, Caistros, which came down to the Aegean and dumped out into the ocean there, had silted up over a period of three or four centuries, uh, first becoming a malarial swamp, and then finally just becoming land. And that had caused the city to kind of migrate upstream. So it's no longer a functioning port. The city itself, like I said, now it's almost on the coast. It's about eight miles up the coast. If you go there today, the ruins, about eight miles up the coast. So it closed, the port closed. And normally with a port city, when your port closes, you, know, you cease to exist, right? It would have just stopped being a city. But in the case of Ephesus, it continued because along the way, due to all the wealth and everything else that had come into the city, they had managed to create a massive temple, a temple dedicated to Artemis or Diana, depending if you're using the Greek or the Roman. Um, very much like the Parthenon in Athens, but if anything, bigger and more grand, considered one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. Like the Parthenon, which had its statue of Athena, uh, they have a statue in their temple, only it's of Artemis or Diana, and you can look that image up if you want, you can Google it, and it was pretty gross. Um, it was pagan idol, no two ways about it. Well, it was so big and so impressive and so famous that it drew people from all over the empire. Both the worshipers of Artemis or Diana, who wanted to make pilgrimage there, and just plain tourists, because it was really, you know, big and amazing, and you wanted to go see it. And so Corinth had become kind of your typical tourist town, right? You got this great big, you know, thing people want to see, the temple, and then you have, you know, the hotels and, and the cafes and the gift shops. I mean, just like today, massive, massive tourist town. So that's what 
Paul arrives at uh, in Acts 19. Now, we're not going to turn there now. I'm just going to pull out a few notes from Acts 19. But I really do suggest that you read that because it gives us a picture of how the church got started, this church to what Paul, which Paul is writing, right? Uh, did I want to encourage you to read that passage in Acts 19. When Paul, or Acts 19. When Paul gets there, he finds a handful of believers, about a dozen of them, um, people who were saved. Everything about the text suggests they were saved, but they were, in their, in their understanding of salvation, and it isn't that hard to understand how this could happen, whoever led them to Christ had not been exposed to the teaching of Christ up to the point of the day of Pentecost. They had left Palestine, left Israel, left whoever explained salvation to them hadn't been there on the day of Pentecost, didn't know about any of that. So when Paul starts talking to these, these 12 guys in Ephesus um, and the subject of the Holy Spirit comes up, they, what? And in Acts 19, they literally say, we have not even heard the Holy Spirit even exists. It's kind of wild. And so Paul explains to them about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, prays for them, they receive the Spirit, and they're speaking in tongues, just like Acts chapter 2, okay? Then, and Paul stays there for two full years. And at the end of that two years, the text in Acts 19 says, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean like China. That's just the province in Turkey that was called Asia at that time. So all of southwestern Turkey heard the word of the Lord based on Paul's preaching and teaching in this town of Ephesus, right? Well, along those two years, they started to face some opposition. Paul's preaching and teaching drew opposition. First from the local Jewish community, and they addressed that. They moved. They went from one building to another. That was pretty simple. Um, then they began to have a problem with some Jewish exorcists because the text says Paul was doing ex or extraordinary miracles were done by Paul. And I think that's an interesting expression, an extraordinary miracle, as opposed to a garden variety miracle, right? But what was happening was truly things that were not your normal miracle. Now, I, I say that, you know, seriously, because lately, I, I've been in several conversations lately when people say, well, have you ever actually seen a miracle? Well, yeah. Anybody that knows me the way I used to be and knows me now has seen a miracle. I can say that a lot of you, too. Um, I know some of you, and I know where you'd be if it wasn't for the Lord, right? That's a miracle, right? Now, but that's not like you know, in this case, Acts 19, they would just take Paul's, you know, work cloth, literally, because he, he worked in leather, right? He was, a, he was a tradesman. They would take those cloths and they would lay them on the sick and they would get well. That's an extraordinary miracle, right? That's not your everyday miracle, okay? Those kind of things were happening. And they were casting demons out. And some of the Jewish exorcists tried it, and it, you can, again, read it in Acts 19. It didn't work, right? So they began to have conflict with that. They also had conflict with some practitioners of magic. And in Acts 19 is where we read that they all brought their magic books and burned them. And in case you're wondering what that's about, that I think is relevant. Um, the idea was, the mindset was, people recognized that there was a physical realm and there's also a spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm is inhabited by spiritual beings. And they're really, really powerful. But they're not all powerful. And these spiritual entities which have a lot more power than we do, can nonetheless be influenced by us. If you know the right things to say, and you know the right things with your hands, and you know the right chemicals to mix together, we're talking sorcery here, right? If you knew how to do all of that, you could influence 
these spiritual entities that were influencing you. So if you're a farmer and you want a good crop and you're worried about whatever spiritual entity it is that controls the crops and you're not thinking you're going to be treated well, you do all this stuff to compel the spiritual entity to bless your crops. Now, obviously, if you knew how to do that, that was a very valuable skill. So these books that are referred to, again, we're not saying any of that's true. That's the worldview they had. These books that explained all that stuff were quite literally like a sorcerer's cookbook, right? Very, very valuable, because this stuff is not generally public knowledge. Well, when they came to Christ, they brought all that stuff. We don't want anything to do with that now. Let's burn them. And they burned them. The reason I think that's especially critical for us, though, remember the worldview that I explained? you got these spiritual entities, more powerful than we are, but not all powerful. If you know what to say and what to do, and then you can manipulate them. I know a lot of Christians that pray that way. I listen to a lot of Christians and the way they pray. You know, we're going to compel God to do our bidding by whatever. Don't pray that way. It's pagan, right? When we ask God to do something, we're asking God to do something, right? That's the amount of our influence. We pray because we believe he loves us. And if it's in our best interest, he'll respond. Okay? But that's another conflict that, that was totally aside. That was another conflict that Paul had. But where it gets really interesting is in verse 23, still in Acts 19, where Paul has a problem with a guy named Demetrius, who was a silversmith who supplied the gift shops. When I said gift shops, you thought I was joking, didn't you? No, Ephesus had a large number of high-end gift shops where they sold silver replicas of this idol, and it brought an awful lot of money into Ephesus. So Paul is, is conflicting not only with religious authorities, with pagan authorities, and with, with the commercial power it be in Ephesus. So Paul is involved in all this conflict. It really resulted in quite the disturbance. It ended well, but it didn't really end. And so it remains an undercurrent facing the church in Ephesus. So that's what we're trying to, to set up. This church grows, is growing in this environment of spiritual conflict, economic conflict. I mean, the whole spectrum, they're at odds with a very large segment of their population. Okay, that's one picture we have of the church of Ephesus, how it starts. But what we also need to be mindful of as we're reading this letter is how it ends. Revelation chapter 2. This is the same church that is spoken to in Revelation. And if you know the book of Revelation, you know that it begins with, with an angel with a message for seven churches. And the message to the Ephesian church, this is Revelation chapter 2. Again, I recommend you read it on your own. Revelation chapter 2 is essentially this. Your ability to withstand, I'm paraphrasing it quite a bit, but if you read it, I think you'll see where I'm coming from. Your ability to withstand all those influences around you is exceptional, but you've lost your emotional connection to God. The actual message is you've lost your first love. You've lost the emotional connection you had to, your, to God. And so, quite frankly, the excellent job you've done resisting all these outward influences isn't helping you much. Because what's more important is that connection you have to God. So that's, those are the bookends to this letter. The way the church starts, amid great conflict and yet with great success, and then this really dangerous situation they find themselves in 
by the time the book of Revelation is written, that they're in danger of losing their place in the kingdom because they've lost their, their emotional connection to God. Doctrinally solid, but they've lost that emotional connection. And I really think that's a somber warning to us, especially in the culture we find ourselves in right now, where we are most definitely um, in conflict with a good part of our society and our culture for a variety of reasons. The last, the last week has highlighted that, if nothing else. We indeed live in an increasingly ungodly society, a society that is resistant to the message of the gospel. In fact, if you listen to a lot of what is said, even people that are claiming to be Christians are saying things that if you listen to them, is like, no, that's not what Scripture teaches. So there's even confusion, I think, within the body of Christ, what it is to be a Christian. And it's, it's all to be a follower of Christ. And it's all because of this, this conflict that we find ourselves in. And I just find, as, as I observe people, when we as believers come into conflict with our society, we tend to go one of two ways. We either tend to try to accommodate our society, which is what the Corinthians did, or we get so resistant to it and we put up barriers and we're totally, we tend to go one way or the other. And I think neither one of those is healthy. There's got to be a, not a middle path, but a different way. And how do we accomplish that? Well, that's what this letter is all about. So let's look at the text. Paul, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Two words really stand out in this very first sentence that I think help us understand where Paul's going in this letter. First of all, he uses that word that he's used so many times. He says, to the saints, right? The holy ones, that's all that word means, is holy ones, right? They were, and we are, the holy ones of God. How do we get that way? How did the Corinthians get that way? How did the Ephesians get that way? Well, first, because God declared them to be holy, but even more importantly, because God dwelled in them as he dwells in us by our spirits. Same word, Holy Spirit. We are the holy ones. We're holy. Our status... This letter is all about status. The Ephesian letter is all about their status, them understanding their status. They needed to understand that their status was holy ones. And that is because the second word in this first sentence I want to draw your attention to is this little tiny word, in. 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 Now, as I've told you before, I heard a lecture about 40 years ago that I've never forgotten. Pay attention to the little words. This is a classic example of why that is so very important because these little words represent relationship. They represent um, condition. Now, I, I have said this, I think, before, but one of the big differences between Greek and English is when we make a statement, like let's say um, my, I ask my wife, where is something, right? And she says it's in the refrigerator. She has to use the word in. Because if she doesn't, it might mean in front of the refrigerator, on top of the refrigerator, behind. It could mean any number of things relative to the refrigerator. She doesn't have to say in. In Greek, I mean, she has to say in in English. In Greek, you don't have to. Because based on the way you write or say refrigerator, you carry the information that it's in the refrigerator. She can just say that word, refrigerator. CEO happens to be the word, right? She can just say the word refrigerator, and the way it ends, the way the word ends tells me it's in the refrigerator. 
So if she does put the word in, in front of the word refrigerator, what's she saying? She's saying you should have already known it was in the refrigerator because I already told you it is in the refrigerator. Look more closely. Because that's usually preceded by my having looked and not seen it. I said, honey, I looked and it's not in the refrigerator. She'd go back and look again. Because it's in the... See, that's how it works, right? So by, you don't have to put the preposition, the word in, unless you really mean it. We have to raise our voice in English to get that same effect, right? But in Greek, you don't have to. You just put the word there. Oh, okay, you mean in, right? That word, in, which does not need to be used in the vast majority of cases, is nonetheless used like 60 times in this letter. Kind of gives you an idea where Paul's going with this. In, in, is an extremely important concept, right? Being in Christ, Christ being in us. Look, look at the passage, I'm going to read it again, uh, not all of it, but most of it, these first few verses in, in the letter, and look how often that word occurs. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, in Christ, right? In the heavenly places, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved, right? In him, we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he freely lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And it's a huge issue. He wants us to see the connection between ourselves and, him, and, 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 our, and our God, our Savior. Again and again, Paul uses this word connecting us through our God, through the word in. I think he uses it eight times in those few verses. And that actually continues to the rest of the book. Paul wanted the Ephesian church, the believers there, to understand they were in relationship with Christ. Their identity was bound to him being in them, and this was all based on the work of God. The point being, the correctness of our doctrine, our teaching, is essential. Paul tells Timothy, pay really close attention to it because that's how you, you and your hearers are saved. But what's more important is to understand what defines us, what makes us Christians, is the fact we're in Christ. That's what makes us believers. It's not, it's not the accuracy of our doctrine. Our doctrine can be perfect. Our understanding can be perfect. And we should strive for that. We should strive to have perfect understanding of what God teaches in his word. That should be a constant goal for every one of us, to learn all we can. But that's not what defines us as his family. That's not what makes us his children. It is the fact that we are found in him and that he dwells in us. Right? Look, look what Paul says about our status. Again, this is all about status. Verse 3, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All that we need, all that we need, we already have. Why? Because it's based on relationship. If our, if, if our place, if our status on, as Christians was based on what we knew or what we understand, the score we got on the test, 
then it would increase, right? As we knew more, as we understood more, our status would increase. Our status doesn't change. We're saints on day one, completely identified with him. And Paul isn't the only one to make this point. Uh, listen to Peter. This is in 2 Peter 1. A grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious magnificent promises, so that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. Paul says we are all, everything we need, we got. He gave us everything. We are already partakers of his divine nature. Right? We need to grow in that. We need to grow and develop in our ability to express that, to live that out. Our life should reflect it more and more, but the status doesn't change. When we come to him, we're in him. Verse 5 is incredible, getting back to Acts. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, that's one of those words that if you're really into doctrine, when you hear it, all the lights come on because you want to talk about that word predestination. And it's a powerful word. A lot to be said about that. A lot to be discussed about that. But I'll be frank. In that verse, that's not the one that gets me excited. When I see that word adoption, I light up. The word literally, is, the word is ye thesia. Ye, child or son. Thesia, place. The status of a son. That's what adoption is. Just the other day, it happens every now and then, was in a, in, a, in a situation where somebody was describing somebody else's family and they made reference to their adopted children and then they said it, but they're not really their children. Makes my blood boil. Because, frankly, if those adopted kids aren't their kids, I'm not a, fall, I'm not, I'm not a child of God. You're not a child of God. Because the whole basis upon which we enter into that status as a child of God is that God has given us that status. He has determined that we are adopted. That's his decision, his choice. When I was adopted as a child, I got adopted. It wasn't until years later I found it out. Right? I was adopted by my parents. They made that choice. Now, I know the legality of that you know, has changed and developed over time, and I understand that, but the bottom line is he has determined that we are his adopted children, okay? And if you have any questions about the absolute nature of that, look at the next verse. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon that. This verse actually has been spoken to several times already this morning. Pastor Joyce referred to it. When she talked about God going into the pawn shop of sin and redeeming us, that's exactly what he's talking about. This word redemption um, is, 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 is a pawn shop term. We'll talk about that in just a second. But, but before we get to that detail, I want to point out the difference between redemption and salvation. You know, sometimes we use those words interchangeably. I'm saved, I'm redeemed. They're definitely related, but they're different in, in, a, in a small but really important way. Salvation is from a specific danger or threat. I got saved in the Coast Guard. That's kind of been my thinking, right? When we, people would call us to save them. Coast Guard, Coast Guard, come save my boat. That's what we hear across the radio. It usually meant like we're out of gas and we're drifting onto the rocks, right? We're taking on water. 
we're on fire, right? Those kind of, it was always a specific threat, you know. Let's face it, most of you know, if you run out of gas while you're out fishing, what do you typically do? You keep fishing until there's a crisis, right? That's when you call for help. Okay. So we got the call when there was a specific threat. So salvation is being saved from a specific threat, hell. The effect of my sin, life without God, very real specific threats. Redemption is completely different. Redemption is not being saved from a threat. Redemption is a change in status. Right? I found myself in the pond of sin. I had sold myself into sin. The fact that I was born a descendant of Adam already had me there, right? I was in a status of slavery to sin. Jesus walked into what happens when you want to redeem something in a pawn shop. You go in, you identify it, you know, they give them the little piece of paper they gave you, and you pay the price of redemption. It's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. He went into the pawn shop of sin, said, that one's mine, and I paid the price in my blood. Redemption, right? It's an extraordinary word. Apolitrosis. Not the easiest word to say. Apolitrosis, uh, like many Greek words, it's from two. Apo means from, right? We're redeemed from something, from the status that we were in. But the really extraordinary part of that is the second part of the word, litrosis. And that's the word means to redeem or to pardon or, or rather to ransom. And it goes all the way back in, 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 the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus. If you remember, if somebody got himself way in debt, he could sell himself into slavery, and then a relative could come along, pay the price of redemption, and buy him out. That's Leviticus 25. And that person is called the kinsman redeemer. They could redeem that person out of the status of slavery. What's really interesting is the whole word, whole word doesn't get put together until the New Testament. We are redeemed from the status of slavery. But here's the beautiful part. Here's the beautiful part. And just kind of stick with me a little bit longer here on the, the Greek grammar. Um, all of this is based on a very, very old stem, the little word in the center, which is leo. And leo is the first word that Greek students learn because it's relatively easy. And it's also, it, it follows all the rules, which almost nothing in the Greek language does. Um, so it's a good word to study. But leo means to free, to release, or to destroy. Now you go, wait a minute, how do you put those three together? Okay, I can put free and release together. Those kind of make sense. But how do you get from free and release to destroy? Okay, we're all in, in danger here because I'm going to have to talk about physics for a second. And that's always risky when I do that, right? Um, when you look outside and you see a tree, you think you're seeing one thing, right? We all know you're actually not seeing one thing, but a collection of billions of little things, right? And I'm not sure if the right term is molecules or atoms or something else. I don't know. But there's billions of little things in the one big thing, the tree, right? So it's cold. It's winter. You cut the tree down, one thing down, you know, split it up, stick it in the wood stove, and a month later you look on the wood stove and you have a little pile of ashes. And you go, what happened? I had this great big tree, one thing, and now it's a little tiny pile of ashes. What happened to the one big thing? You think, I destroyed it. 
I destroyed it by burning it. But when I burned it, what did I actually do? I took all those billions of little things, molecules, atoms, again, I'm not sure the right word, all those billions of things that were bound together to make a tree, and I set them free. I released them to go be whatever they went on to be. You know, at first they were smoke. But you know, you know what I mean? Gases. They've gone, did, did they cease to exist? Did those billions of atoms, molecules, did they, do they see? No, they don't cease to exist. They can't, right? I think Newton taught us that, right? You can't do that. No, they continue to exist, but now they're free to go off and be something else. So the status of all those little billions of atoms and molecules has changed. And now there's something else. That's where this word is drawn from, the idea that in the act of redemption, see, here's, here's where all of this points to, and this is so beautiful, so beautiful. When you and I come to Christ in faith and we ask of him on the basis of your shed blood, free me of my sins. Free me from the record of my transgressions and sins. He doesn't just take it and set it aside. He absolutely destroys it by taking the very, the most minute detail that it is made of and absolutely scattering it. So that, can you rebuild the tree from the ashes? No. So that the record of our sin is so thoroughly destroyed, it cannot be reconstructed. If you want to find the record of my sin, the book of my sin, you're going to have to look a lot of different places because he has absolutely destroyed it and in the process of doing that has freed me from the record of my sin. That's what redemption means. That's what redemption is. That's what Christ has done for us. He destroyed the record of our sins. He changed our status. He removed us from the status as sinners to the place that we become something else, children of God. And that's so critical because so many of us have worn ourselves out trying to do the right thing because we want to do the right thing when all the while our focus needs to be the right people. That is his children in relationship to him. And to allow Christ to manifest his character in and through us. That's the task. The task is to so live our lives that his character shines out through us, which is a miracle. And that's not even an extraordinary miracle. That's an everyday miracle. He does that every day, 24-7. Changes us in such a way that his character shines out through us, right? I want to end this morning uh, with a passage from another, another book. Just turn over just a couple of pages. Um, and I, I do ask, if you have your Bibles, follow me on this one. In Philippians chapter 2. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul talking about this whole matter in the application of his own life. And again, we'll close with this. The first, oh, six verses in, um, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul's talking about all the stuff he did, all the stuff he accomplished, all the things that he thought would make him acceptable in God's sight, his, all the doing, right? And then in verse 7, he says this. But whatever things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. A shift from doing to being, from action to status, okay? 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in him, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, relational, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death status. Being conformed to his death. Changing my status. In order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You know, coming to Christ in faith is in many ways a lot like getting married. It is. If you think about it, when you get married, in one moment, your status has changed. You were a single person. Now you're a married person. Now, if you're blessed and, 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 you, and you do the work and the marriage continues, uh, Joyce and I celebrated our 39th this year. I'm so, so excited about that, right? On our 39th anniversary, will we be more married than we were on the first day? No. We'll be less married either. We'll be the same status we were on day one. Because on day minus one, we were something else. Our status changed. Right? Our marriage may become richer. Our enjoyment of it more full. All kinds of things. Challenges may end. But the status doesn't change. Only its meaning. Only its expression. When we come to Christ, our status has changed. And everything that follows is an expression, or should be an expression of that status. Father, I thank you that as we look to your word, as we start into this incredible letter to the Ephesian church and all the really incredible stuff Paul's going to talk about, I just pray that we would keep this focus, Lord, not just as we study the letter, Father, but in everything we do this week, Father, every person we encounter, I'm sure some of us are going to have some pretty animated discussions this week in light of the Supreme Court decision and all that other stuff. Father, there's a whole, all kinds of things going on in our world that will give us opportunities, Father, um, to say things and, Father, and to do things. But, Father, I pray that as we're about the process of this week, um, Lord, whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in, we would be mindful, Lord, we would be mindful that it's all about the status that we have in you. And that is something that you accomplished for us. And we, by faith, simply step into, Father. And let our words and let our actions, Father, the meditations of our heart, Father, all be rooted and grounded in the, the marvelous status that we have as your children, Father. We don't want to be like the Ephesian church to hear at the end of the, day, end of the road that we've, we've lost that emotional connection. We've lost our first love, Father. No, we want to maintain that status of as your children it just keeps us in love with you, Lord, and those around us in Jesus' name. Man, let's, let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.